the Theology on Tap, everybody. My name's Justin. This is Brian. We're glad that you are here this evening. It's been three weeks. We normally are every other week. I heard a, some people came last week. They did, uh, yes. God bless you. I'm so sorry that... Well, I hope you had a good time. If I'd only known, I would have come over and hung yeah. out. I was in Africa, so I couldn't make That's it no last excuse. week. Yeah, no excuse <laughs> at all. Well, anyways, we're glad that you're here with us tonight. Excited for it. If this is your first time, I'll explain how it works. You'll see these flyers kind of around the room. You can join our email list by just scanning that one at the bottom. But uh, the way this works is we'll talk on any given topic each time that we gather. And this week, we're, I'm excited for the, the topic this week is going to be about the church. Uh, but what you can do at any point tonight, you can scan this top QR code. And it can be related to nothing that we talk about or something specific maybe that comes up. <clears throat> Basically, any question you have whatsoever, you can scan this and submit it anonymously. And if you see questions that you like, go ahead and give those a thumbs up. And do we have a moderator tonight? Somebody who's Cole. Cole's going to be uh, on the mic, and he'll be able to look at the questions and then pose them to us, and we'll try to do our best to answer them as concisely as possible. Uh, another announcement. I sent an email out a while ago <clears throat> for those who were interested. I was talking about this book called After College. I had a number of people who were like, yeah, I'd love a free copy of that book. Turns out I only have six of them, so um, I would be happy to buy another one, though. But this was a great, great little helpful resource for those who are young professionals trying to figure out life right after college, which tends to be our major demographic here. So uh, if you were one of those people who said, yeah, I'd love to grab a copy, they're up here. Go ahead and grab a free copy. Leave at least two, though. So but some, I know some people who couldn't make it tonight uh, wanted a couple. So actually... I'm going to do that. That was dumb. Don't take those two on the floor. Um, so you can take one of these or uh, talk to me and I'll order some more. So it'll be great. But tonight, so I was in Africa. That's why I wasn't here for two weeks. And you made it back, which we're very which grateful Which was for. kind of amazing. I did not yes, think. Yes, it was a question there for a while. There were several points where I thought my life was going to Ask end. Ask Justin about the car <laughs> breaking down out in the bush in the middle of the night and the driver walking off. The driver yeah. But besides that, it was great. But yes. So we made it, and um, but the reason I was there was because I was there for a church conference. This was a gathering of 85% of all those who claim to be Anglican. So people from all over the world talking about what is the Anglican church. And it was kind of amazing because most of the people there do not look like us. The average Anglican is a 30-year-old Nigerian woman, if you look at demographics, which most people are like, Church of England, that's the average you know, person? Actually, yes, because it is a global church. And so the last few weeks on my heart has been really what, talking about the church and what does this mean. And we've had a number of times uh, at Theology on Tap where some people are like, man, why do I need to go to church? Is I really should do that? And so we thought this would be a great opportunity to talk in general. What is the church? Why is it important? Is there anything that's actually practically good news for me in my life here and now for your average person walking in off of Market Street? So how, what would you say, you know, let's start with what is the church, and then hopefully we'll get to maybe that question of, like, how is the church actually something really practical and, and something that's good news for us? Yeah, so I would say the church is the body of believers in Jesus Christ um, who are called together. And one of the things that we tend to miss because we live in a very individualistic age and a very individualistic culture in a very individualistic, independent sort of country 
we miss that when you look at the revelation of God all through scripture, he is always calling a people to himself, not just to individuals. And to me, the most exciting thing about that is that if you're walking with Jesus, sure, you are walking with Jesus, which is an amazing thing, but you are in a company of other people. And you are not supposed to be walking alone. That's not the way the Christian life is supposed to work. And that when we come together in that fellowship of people who are all seeking to follow Jesus, that there is joy in that. Yeah. I love that. Notice you didn't say anything about one day a week set aside for worship. because, And we'll get to that. But first and foremost, as you said, it's a people that is set apart. And so a lot of people think, well, the church started after Jesus. But actually, you can go back to the very beginning of the Bible. And if you think about the church as God's people who are saved from the penalty of their rebelling against God and going their own way, he, he gives himself as a sacrifice for them. And it's always by trusting in him that they have this fellowship, this union with God. That goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. And so the people of God is not something that's just after Jesus, but you see this all throughout the Bible. And if you think about it, that's way more significant. It's a better place to start than just what the church does uh, on the Sabbath or one day of the week where we worship. It's it's a, a way of life. It's, it's who we are um, as God's people. And, uh, you know, some of the distinctive adjectives, I guess, that historically the the creeds, which are the statements of Christian faith that most denominations across time and space have agreed upon, the Nicene Apostles' Creed mm-hmm. describe the church as one holy Catholic and apostolic. Y'all ever heard those terms before? Uh, one holy Catholic and apostolic. What do those mean, actually, and why are they important? Well, I think they are hugely important because that is how the church has defined what it means to be in that body. So one means that everybody that is seeking to follow Jesus under the lordship of Jesus and under the authority of the scriptures, that we are one body. Um, And Jesus prayed for that in the high priestly prayer in John 17, which if you've never read before, please go and read it because Jesus actually prays for you in that prayer if you're a believer because he prays for those who have um, heard and believed because of the testimony of the apostles. So that oneness is really important. Holy goes all the way back to that Old Testament concept that you were talking about. Holy basically means set apart, that you are called out, that you are different from the rest of the world. So God set apart a people for himself in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the church are those who are set apart, who are following Jesus. So one, holy Catholic. This is small c Catholic. It doesn't mean Roman Catholic. Um, It means universal, that it is across um, languages. It's across cultures. It's across time periods. It's across every kind of division that you can think about. It's Catholic. It's universal. It is everybody that believes in Jesus. And the most amazing thing that you will experience if you travel and go to be with other Christians, you can go somewhere where they don't speak your language, where you don't know the particulars of what's going on. But people that are following Jesus, you will find that there is this resonance of fellowship with them, no matter where you are in the world. 
And then apostolic means that we are under the authority of the 12 apostles, those who um, had three years with Jesus, who were uh, his followers, who learned the faith inside and out, and then passed that faith on to what became known as the church. Yeah, that's so the going back to the Catholic piece there, that was something that this past week really stood out to me as I'm gathering with people from all over the world. In fact, i got to share, I don't know if I've told you this, but one of the highlights, we're all gathering, <coughs> worshiping, and most of the people are speaking different languages, right? But we're in Kigali, Rwanda, and so there was a lot of, you know, they, most of Rwandans can speak English, and so uh, it was kind of cool because they had this choir that, you know, very different than what St. Philip's is like. We're priest at St. Philip's Church here, but they, they do... Um, Handel's they, Messiah. They had Handel's Messiah yeah. where they were singing King of Kings and Lord of Lords about Jesus, and then they went off into all these different languages, and I'm just in a, a room with a thousand other people from their own languages and countries, and it was just beautiful, because we all know the, like, the song, the where, you know, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords... And that transcends yeah. so much of what our own context is. And it was just a beautiful thing, like as you, as you said earlier, when you're in that environment with people who are so different, but your bond in the, the most important thing is actually there. Um, it's a powerful experience. But, um, you know, going back to something you said earlier about the, <clears throat> we live in an individualistic age, right? And I think that's what is probably why talking about the church is so important is because while especially here in America that's very you know the whole don't tread on me uh, flags and like we're all about you know our Which originated at St. Philip's it, Church it did by the yeah way. we're not against democracy and individual rights and stuff like that Christianity started that in many ways um, but while God saves individuals he never saves them individualistically he saves people individually into a community. And I think most people don't realize that when they sign up to be a follower of Jesus. It's like, well, well, I can add Jesus into my life, but I can kind of just keep going on with what I want to do. But they don't realize the bigger picture is that Jesus actually brings you into a new family. Oh, that was bad. Wow. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it brings you in a new family, and, and that's one of the images of what the church is. There are also, we can talk about some of the metaphors or images, but that, I think that's so encouraging. We're jumping into what, what is good news about it, but I met so many widows and orphans. Um, yeah, it's fine. Did it stop working? Okay, thanks, Chris. I met so many folks in Rwanda whose families were slaughtered in the genocide in 1994, and you want to talk about why the church is important? Well, literally, their brothers, their sisters, spiritually, are there for them in ways that their family has been taken away. And that's what I love when Jesus in the, in the Gospels talks about whoever leaves father, mother, brothers, and sisters for my sake will receive back a hundredfold in the kingdom of God, uh, mothers, brothers, and sisters. And that's one of the good news, uh, one of the pieces of good news about what the church is meant to be despite her flaws, is that it's a family. Yeah, I think that's so important, particularly because we live in a culture where loneliness is just epidemic, and people are finding it so difficult, even if they know other people, to really connect with other people at a level that's meaningful, where you don't feel like you're just alone. And we've 
dumbed down the definition of friend because of social media. Uh, and the result of that is that so many people feel isolated and detached. And the interesting thing is when you look at the New Testament, and particularly when you look at the whole idea of people who come to believe in Jesus in the New Testament, it's very different than the lingo that you might hear in the United States. A lot of times you hear about accepting Jesus into your heart. And that's important. It is important to accept Jesus into your heart. But that's not all there is. You are called to follow Jesus. The command that Jesus gives most often is follow me. And then you are also called to be baptized. But the baptism is not an individual isolated thing. You are baptized into a body of believers that becomes your new family. And the book of Acts is particularly beautiful in describing this. And part of the reason that the Roman Empire wanted to stamp out Christianity was that the Roman Empire, which if you studied ancient history, you will already know this, was very, very class conscious. And there was a big difference between the aristocrats, people who were Roman citizens, people who were not Roman citizens but were rich, people that were not Roman citizens that were poor, who were sort of at the bottom of the heap. And what Christianity did is it took all of those people across that spectrum and told them that you are brothers and sisters with one another and you are to love one another. And Christians started doing that and the Romans were terrified because they thought this is going to undermine our entire power structure. And that is what really began the persecution of the church. But that whole idea about church as family is really, really important. And in our um, isolationist world that we live in today, we've moved more to what I think of as church as like the weekly grocery store run. That we live elsewhere, we have some other group of people that we relate to, and then once a week we drop in to pick up what we need to make it through the next week. But that is not at all the New Testament vision of the church. Yeah, imagine seeing, and that's one of the things, like, if you read the, the Bible and see all these metaphors, you know, um, for the church, the, uh, being adopted into the family of God or the body of, of Christ, like, and every member is united in this body and essential in its function, uh, you, you start recognizing, it's like, man, the disconnect of where we are and my heart breaks in many ways because I think people are so well-meaning and, and well-intentioned, but there's just so many other things that vie for attention. And so, I mean, I'm, I've got three young kids. Like, we've got sports all the time and, and all these things. And I'm, I'm in that world right now where so many uh, – uh, but you're trying to imagine, like, if, what if we as a family met just kind of one hour a week and that was really kind of all we saw of each other? That would be a pretty – like – what kind of family is that? But, so you look at what the Bible says, like, is the church, and then you look at kind of the state of what, okay, that's a kind of a pretty strong indictment of, like, how we actually live as the family of God now. What are some ways that we can live more into what it means maybe to be a, a, the family of, of faith? Well, I think part of it involves shifting your priorities because you can't be an integral part of 20 different families. Yeah. That is not physically possible time-wise. And I think that for many of us, we have bought into our culture's lie that our work life and our work success is the most important thing. 
and particularly when you're the age that most of y'all are, you hear over and over again, you've got to suck it up for about 10 years and just be miserable and keep your nose to the grindstone and gut it out and do what you got to do. And then when you're like 35, if you've like gutted it out and sacrificed all the rest of your life, then you'll like have enough money where you can like have a life again. But the problem with that is it's a lie. It doesn't work that way. And uh, if you talk to people that are on the other side of that, they will tell you that that's a lie. So I think that that, that cultural myth is a big obstacle. The other one that I think is a big obstacle is we find it, particularly as Americans right now, very difficult to live into what I would call the rhythm of the church. Because the rhythm of the church is a more ancient rhythm that revolves around worship. And we're not used to that because if we worship anything in this culture, it's ourselves and our own success. And the idea of taking time out of our schedule to do something that is non-productive, where I'm not going to get more muscle mass or lose weight or acquire any marketable skill, um, that seems like, well, why would you bother? Uh, and worship means that you go and focus for an hour, an hour and a half, or even two hours on Ooh. God. And, but the point of that is when you do that, it completely restructures your priorities. And I think once you restructure those priorities and begin living into that rhythm, that that's where the beauty begins. Yeah. So that was really the first time you've even talked about what we do when we gather regularly for worship. And, and that's an important part of what the church is to be about. In fact, that's the Old Testament, like the, the people of God, the, the church that was the ecclesia or the kahal, which meant the assembly, the gathering of people that were devoted to God. And that's specifically what we do one day a week to offer prayer and praise to God and to serve the needs of others. But an, another, I, I would say a more holistic picture of what the church is to be about is found in Acts 2, which we've talked all the time uh, before. It says that the first Christian church, this is what they did. They devoted themselves to the, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day they attended the temple and broke bread in their homes. And, and I think some of the things that, there's a lot that we could say about that, but what I want to focus on is think about the relationships outside of that regular one hour a week or however long gathering time for worship. I think that's one way that we, particularly here, uh, it's great that if you're coming just one hour a week into church, like that's important, please do that. But also take time to invest into the relationships with the people that you meet there. If the church is really this family, uh, it, it's kind of like this. Like if I only gathered with my children at mealtimes, and that was really the only time that I got to know them where we're all kind of together, that's kind of like what we do on Sundays in church. But no, there, there should be more than that, right? Like we should, uh, there'll be times where I go one-on-one -on -one with my son or my daughter, and it's like taking the time to invest in the relationships in the family, not just when we're all together, but specifically when we're scattered. scattered. So meeting in homes and um, yeah, doing a lot of these things, meeting the needs, serving those 
you, you have to spend the time actually with people in the church to be able to, to do that. Yeah, and I think part of what happens is that, again, we have, some of us at least, a very utilitarian view of relationships. And if we don't see a relationship as getting us ahead in some way, we may not want to invest in that. And we are maybe all about networking versus building friendships. And the other thing, think about, particularly if you're in a family where you have multiple siblings, if you only spent time in your family with the sibling that was closest to you in age, mm-hmm. how weird would your family dynamic get? That's a good and idea. one of the great things in the church is that you have people who are 90 years old and you have people who are 10 years old, and they are all called together as a body. And part of what we need to do is to branch out and to get to know people who are not in exactly the same phase of life that we are because there is a a richness in that and I will say just an example of how I experienced what this family means some of y'all know I have had multiple eye surgeries this year and one of them was really the pits Um, I won't go into all the details but they basically like I have a detached retina so they like drill through your eyeball and then like sew it back together and glue it, then you can't move your head for 10 days. So I literally had to sit like this in a chair and my head just like that for 10 days. I was like, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die, because I'm an extrovert now. He's like, I'm gonna be all alone for 10 days. This sounds like a vacation. in the corner. (laughs) (laughs) And the most amazing thing is that completely without my knowledge, some of the people at St. Philip's set up this meal and visit train where every day I had five or six visits. And sometimes it was a 90-year-old lady bringing me a meal. One time it was two high school students coming to read to me out of the Chronicles of Narnia because I couldn't read, because I couldn't, yeah, it was bad. Um, But all of these different people, some people that I've known for years, some people that I hardly knew, and they came every day, and it ended up being such a blast. I mean, I would never have thought that that 10 days of what I was calling my captivity um, would have been a blessing, but it was because of that family surrounding me. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, well, let's, let's end with this. Like, what are some, a lot of this of what we've said, I, I think a lot of people are like, yeah, I know church is important, I should do that. Okay, that's, that's great that that's kind of what the church is, but... Practically speaking, why is it, uh, let's focus on that for the rest of our time, like why is that really something that's going to be encouraging and something that's really good and exciting for people to actually become more involved in what we're talking about? Well, I think part of it is because one of the things that Jesus says is that when two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And so there is a um, spiritual reality fellowship among Christians where when you have two or three Christians together there is the presence of Christ there in a way that is mystical that will be a huge encouragement to you so I think that aspect is important Um, I think the other aspect that's important is that you realize that you are not alone we are as Christians if you're a Christian swimming against a cultural tide that is like a rip current um, going in the opposite direction. 
And we need like-minded people around us to encourage us and help sustain us in that. And if you're just trying to go it alone, it's just not the same. And then also, being able to process what's going on in your spiritual life, either by talking about what was it about that worship service or sermon that resonated with you? Was there anything that struck you particularly? Or even to just talk about, this is something I'm really struggling with. Would you pray with me? You know, all of those kinds of things. That can't happen if you're just alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think another thing, too, is um, certainly the church is an antidote to loneliness. And you have already, that was part of God's design, is that this is a community and that you are not meant to be alone. The, the church is in many ways like the new humanity that God is creating. And I think that's, uh, you know, in one sense, it's good news because a lot of people think the Christian life is essentially, you know, good people trying to be just a little bit better. That's what it means to be a Christian. I'm just going to try to try to do some good things. Like the Bible is just a book of rules and I'll, I'll do my best to follow, you know, some of them that I like maybe. And uh, that's what that's what it means to be a Christian. Yeah. Well, actually, what the is Bible that wrong? that's that's dead wrong. In fact, what it means to be a Christian is that a better picture is not good people trying to become a little bit better, but dead people, God making them alive, putting His Spirit in their hearts, which is kind of like if you think about this, uh, the image of all these coals. Like if you have a bunch of burning coals and you take one and you put it over on the side, what what happens to that coal? It, it stops burning yeah. pretty quickly. But if you put it right back in the coals, it lights back up again. Well, if each of the coals is like a Christian that has the Spirit of God in him, it's no wonder that there's going to be something inside of you. If, if you realize God has forgiven you your sins, he's made you alive in your soul to, to be alive to the things that he's about, and um, you're going to naturally be drawn to others who have that same flame of the Holy Spirit in you. And I think it, in one sense, like it's recognizing that, that God is for the church. Like he created the church. And so this isn't something that just like folks like us and callers are really passionate about. It's like, well, actually, he's the one in his word that talks a lot about his people and what it means to be in fellowship with them. So yes, yeah, and I think that the other aspect of it that's so important and the reason that worship is so important um, and worship together is that when you come together and worship, your eyes are literally not on yourself, but they are focused toward God. And I'm not going to go off on St. Philip's architecture too much, but um, <laughs> the architecture of the church is designed to focus you toward the altar and toward the cross through the pulpit where the Word of God is proclaimed. And that's hugely important. And part of the reason that's so important is that we find our unity and who we are worshiping. And we live in a culture that is so divided that looks at every way that people can be different from one another. And when you're in worship, you take your eyes off of those differences and you focus them all toward the God that you are worshiping together. And all of those differences fade away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's probably a good, I don't know what time it is. Yeah, we should probably call yep. it call it there. So I'm sure there's some questions. How are we doing on the questions? Doing great. Um, right. Guys, I guess if you'd like, uh, go on the uh, site there and upvote and like the question that you would um, like to be asked, and I will try to be beholden to the Democratic will of people as best as possible. So yeah, just take a moment to do that. And um, 
in the meantime, I guess we can uh, proceed with one of the um, top questions, and this is kind of a lighthearted one. It is, what's the best and worst thing you ate in Rwanda? Do not hold back. Don't hold back. Well, I, um, the best thing that I ate in the worst. Yeah, I'll start with the worst because that's easier to recognize. Uh, I I tried I chewed on this piece of goat for a very long time trying to get this thing down, and I called it quits. And so that was the worst thing that I I was proud of myself for trying. Uh, the best thing. Hmm, there was some. I mean, it was really good food. I I do like plantains. We don't really have those much here, but um, yeah, most of the stuff was nothing crazy. It was, Oh, they had, I had this really good lentil soup, actually. It was really, really good. Um, rice, beans, kind of a major part of the diet, but vegetables, not too much different, but just like the chicken and the goat were not, not what I'm used to here, I'll say that. So, nice. but thanks for the, the, uh, the Toto there. God bless the rains down in Africa. That was, <laughs> I don't know if anybody caught that there, Chris and his musical genius. All right, how are we doing? All right. Um... Let's start off with, uh, what is purgatory, and why do Anglicans not believe in it? Okay, well, there's that. Uh, so, uh, purgatory is a doctrine that is generally associated with the Catholic Church. Um, it is a doctrine that also people usually think about with the worst abuses of the doctrine. Yeah. Um, it is not a doctrine that is particularly grounded in scripture. Um, but the basic idea of purgatory is that uh, people who believe in Jesus when they are living um, continue to try to follow Jesus. And then when they die, because they're still sinners, even though they believe in Jesus, they need to go through this purging or cleansing process before they can be admitted to heaven. And so that doctrine got very confused in the Middle Ages. And there was this idea that was perpetrated by one of the popes in Tetzel, who was kind of his main henchman, um, that you could. Uh, pay money for an indulgence of like take years take off years purgatory off for somebody. Yeah. So the old slogan was the moment the coin and the coffer rings, that soul from purgatory springs. Um, that is, as the Book of Common Prayer would say, a fond thing, uh, which means a doctrine that's ridiculous. Not a nice thing. But most day, Catholics yeah. today would not say that's what purgatory is. Um, so I think all Christians would agree that no sinner can enter heaven um, unclean, but that what you have to do is to be cleansed. And the understanding of what the atonement means is that you are cleansed by the blood of Christ. Some Catholics would say that the way that that happens is a longer period that involves purgatory. Uh, but it is not a doctrine um, in the Anglican Church because the Anglican Church finds no real scriptural grounding for that. So the 39 articles, which are the, the Anglican Church of England statement in the 16th century, it, it actually says the Romish doctrine. Yes. So the, the Church of Rome, the, 
Roman Catholic Church understanding of purgatory. That's what they were rejecting. But as you said, this was really helpful. I was a uh, I wasn't an Anglican at the time, but uh, I remember talking to a Catholic priest, and he was like, actually, like everybody believes in some sense of purgatory, in the sense of what you were talking about. And this is actually really important, is that you're saved by grace through faith. Like Jesus accepts us, even though we're sinners. Uh, God, God the Father accepts not um, our record, but Jesus' record on our behalf. And so that's given to us as a gift. That's called justification. We're made... We're counted righteous in God's eyes. But everyone believes that it's not just enough to have that. You have to become made righteous. So like you actually begin to reflect the image of God in your own character. And that's what heaven is going to be like, where we're all made perfect. Uh, not just counted perfect, but made perfect. And so that Protestants believe that happens in an instant in many ways at the end of life. Uh, the Romish doctrine was that there was this understanding that there could be an you know, a period, of, a time. period of time, an yeah. indefin- indefinite period of time that, that happens. But. but if you're confused about that, feel free to talk to us yeah. after. The point is, is like we are made clean in God's eyes forever, and that's that's a good thing. Yes. Yeah. It's part of the gospel. What's next? Um, getting into some hypotheticals now. <laughs> if you were in a dating relationship now, where would you set the physical boundary? Should the woman expect the man to lead her in that? Wow. Okay, that was. From this is basically just like the last question. I don't see the difference here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will say I am not in a dating relationship because I'm in a married relationship. Um, but so where would you set the bet? <laughs> but what I what I would say is that if you are in a healthy dating relationship, the way that you set boundaries is by together talking about that when you are not in a passionate moment on a sofa in somebody's apartment by yourself. Um, So what you would want to do is talk about what your understanding of scripture and all of that is um, with the person that you're in the dating relationship with and then jointly agree with boundaries. If you have one person setting boundaries that the other person is not bought into, um, you are setting yourself up for disaster. So I think if you don't feel like you can have that conversation, that's probably a pretty good sign that this is maybe not a great relationship. That's a really good word. Yeah, I would say um, to add to that, it, what what the Bible is clear on is that all sexual intimacy activity is meant for the marriage relationship, and there's all sorts of. I think I've even gone into this before, but like. The fact that you're bound to somebody legally, socially, in every way, you're holding nothing back from them. That's the context that God's made for you to be fully vulnerable in what the wonders of sex was meant to be. And that's not just physical intercourse, but every aspect of sexual activity. Uh, So that's what the Bible is clear on. So that's easily like the boundary. Now, there's two ways that you can kind of go with uh, if that's what the Bible's teaching. You can kind of go the legalistic way. And this was me, I think, in college or right after college in, in the dating relationships I had. I was like, man, the, the person that I was being mentored by, he was like, actually, I didn't kiss my wife until I got to the, uh, the wedding altar. And I was like, good wow. night. That's amazing. I'm going to do that. 
And uh, I made it to engagement, which was kind of cool, but I you know, kind of broke down after that. So, but still, the point was, I want my relationship not to be marked so much by physical activity, uh, by, but it, it taught Molly and I like, uh, to learn how to be able to communicate well and to express affection in ways that are not just what the culture says now, which is just sexually. Right. Now, that's a legalistic, maybe extreme. The other side um, is, you know, to maybe to be so laissez-faire that you actually don't use wisdom sometimes. So, like, if you find yourself constantly going further than you want in your relationship, it might be good to try and put in some boundaries of, like, yeah, you know what? I find that when we're alone and it's, you know, 2 a.m. and we're in the same place every time where we keep doing what we don't want to do, Maybe we shouldn't go there. So again, I'll leave it up to whoever's asking that question, but you see a little bit of the, the parameters of what we're talking about and some errors to it. And I would say the other thing that's really important in that whole discussion is that our culture, and this is something since I'm old, I've actually seen this happen um, over the past couple of decades, is that now in our culture, the idea of intimacy and closeness and sex are almost identical. And the idea that you can have intimacy and closeness without sex is very surprising to people. But that, historically, is the way people have understood intimacy and closeness, that you build that and you work on that. That has nothing to do with the sexual relationship. And we try to short-circuit that, I think, today, um, because there's such rampant loneliness that we we go straight to the physical and skip the rest. All right, uh, moving right along thematically, any discussion on Justin's recent conference about the Church of England's recent shift on blessing same-sex marriages, or at least um, the Bishop of Canterbury's comments? Yes. So. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, in the Anglican Communion, historically, um, the person who has been in charge of the Anglican Communion is the Archbishop of Canterbury, but his title is first among equals. So he's supposed to be more of a convener. Um, but recently, the Church of England um, has been moving in a very uh, accommodate the culture sort of direction and away from um, understanding itself as under the authority of scripture and even under the authority of doctrinal statements that itself has passed. And so they recently um, agreed that they were going to start blessing same-sex uh, unions. And the Archbishop of Canterbury came out in support of that. Well, that's a huge problem because Historically, the Anglican Communion has understood itself as being under the authority of Scripture. And pretty much all honest theologians um, will agree that the witness of Scripture is that you can't do that. You can't bless what God has not chosen to bless. So because of that, uh, there has been a um, statement that came out of this gathering of 85% of the Anglican Communion saying that if the Archbishop is going to hold to this view, he has lost his authority to lead the Anglican Communion. Do you want to comment? Yeah, no, that's, that? that's really good. Uh, I think this is, in fact, similar to the last question. It needs to be said that God is very, very much pro-sex. Like, he created 
sex. And so I think it's so easy to think, hear some of these things and like, well, God's a killjoy. Like, that is not the case. It's, th- it's actually the same thing as the last question, is that God is all about human flourishing and using the body, using uh, sexuality, using the person as, the, as God intended it, which is going to lead to the ultimate uh, amount of pleasure and joy that we were meant to enjoy, because God himself is good. And I think that has to be said. And so when you actually, as you're saying, when you're going against what God has revealed in his word, you're not being nice to people. You're actually uh, leading them astray and ultimately to something that, yeah, they might seem right in their own eyes, but it's going to be miserable. And um, at the end of the day, like if you believe that God's revealed himself and that he's good, we submit to that. And so this is why this conference was so significant. It's that it doesn't matter who it is, but if they go against God's word, that's the ultimate unity. Like when we talk about the church as being unified, we're not in unity with a particular person other than Jesus and, and the word of God. That's what gives us the unity is that we're in submission to Jesus and his word, not the Archbishop of Canterbury or the Pope or anybody else, it's we're in submission to God and his word. Um, and part of the reason that they would say that he had lost his authority is that everyone, including Justin and me, when you are ordained to the priesthood or ordained as a bishop, you make a vow before God that you will uphold the Holy Scriptures, that you will continue to teach the doctrine, discipline, and worship of the churches that has been received from the apostles. And so to innovate in that essentially is to break a vow before God. Yeah. Big stuff. I'd love to talk more about it if you're interested. Could you elaborate more on what prioritizing living in rhythm of the church looks like for busy 20 and 30-somethings? Serving, consistent attendance, question mark. That is such a great question. Um, I think Rhythm, if you're a musician, you know, rhythm basically means beats that are repeated. And so the rhythm of the church, uh, and each congregation has a different kind of rhythm, but just using St. Philip's as an example, Sunday morning worship would be a non-negotiable if you're trying to lean into the rhythm of the church, that you're there, that you know you're there, that it is a stake that you build around that you probably plan to go to um, Rector's Forum Bible Study, that maybe you make plans with some friends to go together to the worship service, and you make plans to maybe go for a meal after that. Uh, You probably look for a way to do some volunteer work somewhere during the week, whether it's helping with the youth group or with one of our um, missions to the poor or something like that, that you try to do that. You might look for a smaller group Bible study each week. Uh, You might look to coming to the Wednesday service and then staying for the supper and maybe going to C.S. Lewis class. But having those things that you put into your day timer or your Google calendar or whatever you use, they're sort of the things that everything else folds around. Because the problem that most of us have is that everything else goes into the calendar first and then if there's a blank or we don't have anything better to do, then we think about going to church. And rhythm means repetition of doing the same thing. And so making those commitments, I think, is key. 
Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of that. There was a church that I was at that I think did a pretty good job of succinctly putting some of the rhythms. And they would say each of these three categories are essential, up, in, and out. So being up, thinking about your relationship with God. So worship on Sunday mornings, uh, that's, a, that's like the bare minimum. If you want to go deeper, you have um, Christian education time. So there'd be classes like your C.S. Lewis class or like a Sunday school where you're studying a book of the Bible or doing a Bible study, something like that. The in is like actually kind of what we're talking about today, building relationships with the, the fellowship of believers, getting to know them, praying with them, serving them, going alongside the struggles of life and, and suffering together. That's a critical part of like the inward fellowship of the church. But then it's always also meant to go out, to bless the community, to serve the common good, to, to share about Jesus in the world. So up, in, and out. Those are the three rhythms, I would say, that are yeah, kind of helpful really good. think about. Right. What's the difference between waiting for God's timing and being lazy or giving up? Yeah. <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, I think that there is a huge difference there, although sometimes the lived experience of that doesn't feel that different. Um, I think when you are waiting for God's timing, it means that you are intentional about bringing whatever it is that you're waiting for before God, that you're searching the scriptures, that you're praying about it, that you are talking with other people um, and praying with them about it, um, and that you are looking for God to respond. Um, I think when you're doing that, that's what I would call active waiting. And that involves putting yourself in places where God can speak to you. And I would say sometimes God will speak to you just out of the blue while you're driving your car on the East Bay Street, but it's more likely that God will speak to you when you are in a worship service, when you are reading the Word of God, or when you are in deep fellowship or prayer with another person. So I would say that's part of active waiting. Um, if you are not going to church, you're not spending any time with anyone else who's a believer, um, if you just feel really depressed all the time and feel like God has abandoned you, that probably means that you are not actively waiting on God and that you've fallen sort of into the lazy side of that. You want to yeah, answer that's, that? That's, the active part, is a, that's a really good answer to it. I was going to be snarky and say the differences between hope and despair in some sense. Like that's, that's the difference is like Christian waiting is hopeful waiting because you know the God who is watching over your head and knows the, the number of hairs on your head. Like that's one of the things is that, and as you said, the, the active intentional obedience in some ways. Like usually once you get to the laziness, you're entering despair. Why is it even worth trying to follow and be obedient to God? And then chances are you're just likely to go your own way at that point. So uh, that is not Christian help biblical waiting on the Lord. It's, it's even when things don't seem to be going the way you want. You're, you're seeking God. You're asking for his help. You're, you're going to be obedient to him even when what you want in the moment doesn't seem to be happening. And I think that's a key difference. Yes, and I would say part of that goes to your view of God. <clears throat> to believe that God wants what is best for you is key in that. And I could, I'm not going to do this, but I will just encourage you to listen to the Mumford and Songs, I Will Wait. Uh, that particular song has a great theology of waiting on God. And I love it because it talks about 
being on your knees and this whole idea of paint my spirit gold, that there is a, there is a hopeful and joyous expectation in that waiting. And waiting is not easy. We live in the most impatient culture in the history of the world. But waiting on God is something that is commanded in Scripture. And in a sense, like, this entire life is waiting. We're right. waiting yeah. Yeah. for all the deepest desires of our heart to be fully realized when the world is truly remade and, and new and we're with Jesus face to face, where all the sin and misery that we're in now will be eliminated. Yeah. Like, so all of the Christian life is, in a sense, waiting. A couple more. We've got about four more minutes. Um. Do you worry about the future of the church? What can our generation do to ensure it? That's a good question. I think I'm not worried about the future of the church. Couple reasons why. One is Jesus is the one who's looking, who's, he's building his church. He's the one who's caring. He created the church and he's caring for the church actively at this moment. Uh, so in, in that sense, I have just as much hope in the church as I do in Jesus. Despite the church having plenty of flaws, it's not perfect, but it's nonetheless God's creation and God's special care. I mean, the church is one of the metaphors we didn't talk about, but the bride of Christ. And so uh, you think about how much a husband cares for his bride. Jesus loves the church. And that's one of the reasons why we should love the church, too, if you're for Jesus. But I, I also think, you know, throughout history you see the church thriving in certain areas in the world, and then that kind of comes to an end, maybe, or, or it dwindles for a bit, but it pops up in other places in the world. And, and I think that's kind of what we're seeing over the last few decades is, you know, here in the West, it, it maybe is on the decline in areas by and large. But what I just saw firsthand is a, a radical blossoming in Africa and Asia and um, places that are you know, I mean, think about Korea, China. The, the, the church is growing rapidly in some areas that uh, gives me great courage and hope, I think. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that when you look through Scripture, you see God is always in the business of preserving a remnant. That even when everything seems to be going south, uh, that there's always a remnant of faithful people that God uses to rebuild. And certainly you can say the church is in decline in the United States. Some of y'all probably saw around Easter there were uh, a lot of things going around the internet of this picture of Lower Manhattan um, from the 1950s on Good Friday and Easter weekend where the Empire State Building and a couple of other buildings had uh, set their lights in such a way that there were giant crosses on these skyscrapers. And then to imagine Something like that happening in New York City today is almost impossible. But the fact of the matter is, as Justin just said, if you look at what's going on with the Christian faith in Africa now, compared to what was going on in the 1950s, it's night and day, the growth and the vitality there. So it ebbs and flows in different places, but the, um, the church is uh, thriving um, by most measures if you look at it across the globe. Yeah, one more. more. Let's do one more. Um, what are we to think of the nature of the Eucharist? Transubstantiation, consubstantiation, etc. We've done this like three times in the last like I, I feel like well let's answer let's answer it. Alright, well I will say that I think the Anglican doctrine about this is beautiful. 
which is the understanding that in the Eucharist there is the real presence of Christ. And that doesn't mean transubstantiation, that there is a change on the atomic level of the matter of the communion elements of the bread and wine, but that they do become sacred when they are set apart and they are consumed by a believer um, who has faith in Jesus Christ that we are in some way that is a holy mystery partaking in the body and blood of Christ in a way that nourishes our souls. And to me, that is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't really talk about, you know, what the church does when it does gather together on a weekly basis, but that's the sacraments are a key part of that. So communion and baptism, uh, along with preaching and prayer, these are what's called means of grace. Like, and that's one of the you know, big picture to this question, I think, for the person who just walks in from the street here, is that God cares for his people and he wants to build them up. He wants to establish them in faith. He wants to give them what they need to live the, the Christian life. And so one of those is this participation, this relationship with him that goes, that goes deeper and deeper. And so the, the um, preaching... The reading the Word of God, uh, the sacraments, and praying, those are all elements where we are built up in our faith and encouraged. And I think some people can err too much in the direction maybe of seeing these aren't that important, you know, or it, it, the communion is more about just like our commitment to God. But I think the, the big thing is that this is where God is giving us a gift in, in uh fellowship with, with himself, yeah. meeting us. And that. I think um, some of you who were at the Maundy Thursday service heard about this, but part of, part of the idea of these sacraments is that they involve our senses. Yeah. They're tactile. We touch. Um, we're washed. We drink. We eat. All of those things. And that is part of the way that God has ordained things to remind us that the physical reality of our faith is something that is important and that those markers that we have through the sacraments help prepare us for that ultimate kingdom of God. Well, y'all, thanks for coming out tonight. This was a lot of fun. We'll be back in two weeks. Two weeks. We promise we will be two weeks this time. And so feel free to stick around. Uh, if you want a copy of, the, of this book, they're up here. And we'll be around and happy to answer any more questions if you want to chat. Yeah. So thanks, thanks for, for coming. coming.